You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident fanalist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore dad So today we've actually got a lot to talk about, but not a lot of time. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to touch on a few things, give very brief things, and then kind of work on more in-depth thoughts on it. Um, maybe try to get some thoughts from the Facebook group on these things so I can fully form some ideas. Because today what we're talking about is the Detroit Lions, and there is a lot to talk about there. So um, that's the plan. We'll very briefly touch on a couple different things, take a break. I don't even know if we have time for that, but whatever. Lions, and then Lions, and then lots more Lions. Because as much as it seems like, I mean, who cares? We're going to beat them. I don't know. I mean, it's a pretty big game. I, I would say... Not anywhere near as important as the Vikings game in terms of actually feeling good about the team, but it is pretty much basically exactly as important in terms of needing a win for playoff implications, right? We need to win two games. So losing to the Vikings and beating the Lions is just as bad as far as the situation with the playoffs as losing to the Vikings and beating the Lions, right? It's it's one and one having lost to a divisional opponent. So it's as important for all the reasons we needed to beat the Vikings. And this would be a terrible time to start to coast and have just sort of a really garbage day across the board. So it is it is important. Um, as we'll talk about, it's hard to find a situation in which we lose, but that's kind of what I want to focus on because it's, you know, otherwise, how do you find a way to win? There's a billion different ways to win. Just be mediocre. We should should just about do it. So that's the plan, as always. Be sure to get in the Packernet Podcast Facebook group. Make sure you like the Packernet Podcast Facebook page. Also, um, considering it's basically January, a lot of people are starting to shift, I wouldn't say 100% of their attention, but if you are a draft-type person and you're not invested at least a little bit into it, you're already way behind. I do have a, a uh, NFL Draft Facebook page and we're running through right now doing a group mock draft. The Packers are not on the board yet. We're just doing the Cardinals right now. And this takes a very long time. I don't know if we're going to be done even by Sunday. That was the goal, but this does take a long time. But anyways, if you want to get involved in that, get involved in the draft. We've got over 900 members in there, so it's a real big draft community. And I try to find ways to have fun the same way I do with the Packers as far as trying to get people involved in the draft. And so anyways, that's something else that I have. It is um, The group is called NFL Mock Draft. That's not drafts. And the uh, it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash mock drafts if you want to make sure you get to the right spot. A dead giveaway is there is a Packernet podcast logo, and I misspelled 2018, and it, has, it, it says 2108, so it is way in the future. So that's how you can find it. But anyways, just wanted to plug that just for fun, because I think it's fun, and I would like to see more people in there having fun. Never mind, we need to move on because Tristan Wirfs dominated. He's going to the Cardinals, folks! Anyways, that's about it. Otherwise, um, if you want to support the podcast, iTunes is a great way to do it. 
Uh, check the links in the description. There's a way to support the podcast financially. If you're able to do so, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Otherwise, why don't we go ahead and take a break, and we'll get into this very heavy, fun news day. All right, folks, it is officially Vivid Seats time, which is that special time when I get to encourage you to do the things that I wish I could do. Namely, go watch the Green Bay Packers. Now, we got a game tomorrow. If you think you can make it, by all means, get out there. But I want you to remember, the Green Bay Packers have a home game locked up. Probably a bye week, in which case after the bye, someone's coming to Green Bay. But even if they lose today, they're going to be playing in Lambeau. So you have the opportunity to watch a playoff game in Lambeau Field in which there is a very, very good chance the Packers win the game. To be able to watch the Packers win a playoff game in Lambeau, that's an exciting thing. And you don't have to be a Packers historian to realize that it's kind of been a while. The last opportunity you would have had to see this was 2016. The uh, famous New York Giants game where they're, I don't know, in Florida with their shirts off, whatever, and then they come to Green Bay and they take the shirts off like, oh, look at us, whatever, and then they get smoked by the Packers. 38 to 13. Oh, I really want to go on a rant right now, but it's an ad, so I can't. Stay tuned till after the commercial breaks. But I really do want to encourage you, if you can, I'm not asking you to do anything dumb. If you've got bills out of your ears and you can't pay your rent, don't go out buying football tickets. But if you have the opportunity, it is a very, very special and very, very rare thing to be able to watch your team at home in a playoff game. So if you think you'd like to, jump on Vivid Seats and check out what they've got for ticket prices. Find out who you want to take with you. They've, they've made it very easy to be able to pick the section and the price that you're comfortable with. You've got the 100% buyer guarantee. You're going to be able to earn Vivid Seats rewards back for your next time you want to purchase. Like the next time they play in Lambo, you want to go to the next game. Boom, you got a little bit of rewards there. And if it's your first time, enter promo code OVERTIME, and you'll be able to receive a discount of up to $100. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. So I, I said I wanted to go on a rant during the Vivid Seats ad. It's it's really kind of dawning on me because it, it doesn't feel special. And I, I think we really need to realize how special this is. The last time we saw this was in 2016 and, and that Giants game and how amazing that was. You know, the storyline going into it, the Packers had, had a four-game losing streak and then they ran the table, right? Then there was the Giants game and the fear of the Giants game. They had some weapons. And then to watch the Packers absolutely demolish them and how good it felt. And then going into Dallas. Remember how crazy that Dallas game was? We, we watched, I, I see a highlight from that about every other day. Almost every other day I see highlights from that game. That Jared Cook throw? Are you kidding me? Just the memories that have been built. I mean, we, we got to get excited about this, man. Maybe it's going to be one and done. I have no idea what's going to happen. But it's time to get excited. By the way, I don't see any situation 
in which the Packers get eliminated from the playoffs because the team scores 44 points on them. Pretty unlikely, I would say. Anyways, we got a lot to get to here. Let's start off with Lucas Patrick just getting a two-year extension. It is two years, $3.6 million, a very meager wage, and it's actually a really, really good story. I don't know if you guys remember, but uh, he was very, very close to being cut. There was a story a while ago about him feeling as though he just wasn't up to par. The Packers had moved him from outside to inside, telling him he needed to play more center. There was also the new scheme, and uh, apparently he just was feeling like he was about to get cut. Aaron Rodgers had pulled him aside and had talked to him and said, Look, man, you're doing a great job, etc., etc. It's going to take some time. You've proven you can perform. And lo and behold, he not only makes the team, he's been playing all year. Uh, He only played once in in an extended form that was against the Dallas Cowboys when Corey Lindsley was out with a concussion. But he played in weeks 3, 4, 7, 10, 13, and 14 so far. He's played at... It looks like 60 snaps at center so far this year, two snaps at right guard, and then seven snaps, which is really baffling, and I'd like for someone to answer this question if possible. It says at tight end. Now, I'm assuming what that means is he's coming in as a sixth offensive lineman, and because PFF doesn't have a designation for right of right tackle, they designate him as a tight end, but I didn't know the Packers had done that. It happened in weeks, if anybody wants to go back and look, week three, one snap, week four, twice. It happened in week 10, twice. It happened in week 13, twice. But um, by all accounts, he's done a pretty good job. Again, pretty small sample size, but he has not given up a single sack, hit, or hurry. Not one pressure, not one penalty all year in 69 total snaps. As far as how he's grading out, I, I know in Dallas he had some issues with snapping the football, which I think was somewhat problematic. His grade overall wasn't great, which, by the way, if you want to take a chance on him in the stock game, it's high risk because he probably won't play. But if he does, his grade is a 33.5. That's because his grade against Dallas was a 32, and that's almost entirely because his ability to run block was really, really bad. As a pass blocker, though, he's been great. As I said, he hasn't given up a single sack, hit, hurry, or anything all year. Limited sample size, but if you extrapolate that out over the course of what Corey Lindsley has, it would average around one total pressure. So in other words, expected pressures at this point would be about one. He has zero, so I don't know. It's very limited opportunities to be able to see. But anyways, I'm not going to read too much into it. I just think the Packers have decided that he's good depth. It's not to say it's impossible he ever ends up stepping up like like Lane Taylor did at some point in his career. But I don't necessarily believe at this point that this is a long-term, you know, obviously there's some thought, tiny little question mark in my head about, well, what about Corey Lindsley, 10 million bucks next year? I don't know about all that. But I think some of the best teams in the past, the Green Bay Packers, have had very, very good offensive lines. And when they've had very good offensive lines, it wasn't just good starters. They had quality depth. And so I think that's all they're trying to do at this particular point in time is lock up some quality depth. I know I said I wasn't going to go in-depth. But uh, if I have more thoughts later, I'll let you know. Um, Looking at the injury report, Jamal Williams, I guess, is going to be held out. I don't know if that's officially official, but it sounds like it's basically official. He's got an injury. I think it has more to do with wanting him to be healthy in the playoffs than anything. Obviously, nothing against Jamal Williams, but I don't think he's a pivotal piece to where if he doesn't play, we can't beat the Lions. So we want to make sure that he's healthy because I do think he's a crucial piece for this team to be able to win in those type of playoff style games when he gets down to really just wanting to grind down a defense and really just carve out some hard yards. I think Jamal's a big part of that. And so I think just shutting him down is actually pretty smart. Some other guys that are currently listed as doubtful, Will Redmond. Obviously, he's, I guess what you would call quality depth. He hasn't, uh, another guy that, that it doesn't matter, right? If he's got a hamstring issue, we're going to give him a week or hopefully two weeks to be able to recover from that. Uh, One guy that actually is somewhat impactful, I know he's had a hard time getting going, 
But uh, Danny Vitale, it looks like he's probably not going to be playing as well. He's officially listed as doubtful. The only other guy is Jake Kumro with an illness, did not practice on Friday, is questionable. I'm assuming he's going to play. It's hard to say whether or not that has a high impact because it's always there's always a question of needing somebody to step up. And maybe it's Jake Kumro's week. I don't know. As for the Detroit Lions, there's a bunch of questionables. Uh, Kennard, their linebacker. Steve Longa, a linebacker. Matt Prater, their kicker, kicker is sick. I'm sure he'll play, but that's crazy. Rick Wagner is questionable. Uh, Tavon Wilson, their safety, is questionable with a hamstring. Officially out is Ashawn Robinson. I know Snacks Harrison um, for a while was, I was thinking, maybe not going to play. He's got a knee injury, a calf injury. Now he's he's got veteran rest added in there. But uh, looks like he's full go. So, But with Ashawn Robinson being out, that's another key piece on the interior of their defensive line that they're going to probably need. And if I can just, well, let me finish this, I guess. The Lions also, if I may go through this list, are going to be without, because this is their injured reserve list. Nick Bodden, running back. Joe Dahl, uh, their guard. Mike Daniels, defensive tackle. Jared Davis, linebacker. Jeff Driscoll, their second-string quarterback. Marvin Hall, Deshaun Hand, TJ Hawkinson, Christian Jones, Marvin Jones, Jermaine Kearse, Darius Kilgo, Matthew Stafford, Kevin Strong, Jelani Tavai, Kevin Wiggins. Jelani Tavai was their second-round linebacker. All of these guys, some of them are our starters. Jelani Tavai, Matt Stafford, right? Marvin Jones, TJ Hawkinson, their first round. So their first and second round pick right now are on IR. Number two wide receiver is on IR. Number one quarterback, number one tight end. This is a decimated football team. But to con- uh, contrast that, realize that this is the first time we've actually had guys that are not going to play due to injury since week eight when Devontae Adams was out. Since week eight, guys have been healthy, fully healthy, every single week. I don't, I, I, I can't even, I don't even know what that means. Obviously, there's still IR and there, there's people that are shut down, but it's absolutely unbelievable the health of this team. I thought that fans were being entirely unfair to the coaching staff and training staff of the Green Bay Packers because guys kept getting hamstring injuries and whatnot. It's like, well, everybody gets injured. Apparently, um, Matt LaFleur has got this, his finger on the pulse of these guys, <laughs> these guys' bodies. I don't know what's going on. I've never just added to the list of things that I'm just stunned by this year. And yeah, I know I'm gonna jinx it, whatever. I don't, you know, I I got a podcast. I got to talk about stuff. Sometimes I jinx things. I'm sorry. I can't just come on here and be like, well, I got some thoughts, but I can't talk about it because I don't want to jinx it. Just unjinx it on your end. I say it, and then you say, oh, we're all gonna get injured, right? Just whatever. That's your responsibility to unjinx my jinxes. Don't don't come at me with that nonsense. Do your job. I'll do my job, you do your job. A um, couple other things I wanted to talk about. It's a little bit outdated, but it's you know it's still pretty important. I was doing some look at um, the Vikings, and because and, I had mentioned in a podcast a few days ago, it's not very often the Vikings lose at home, and I wanted to go back and see kind of how far. And then I just wanted to look at a few other things. And here's, here's sort of what I found in terms of how rare that win over the Vikings was. Looking at turnovers specifically. The Minnesota Vikings, with a positive turnover differential since 2017, are 20 and two. That's just one more takeaway than giveaway. They're 20 and two since 2017. With a a positive two turnover differential, the Vikings are nine and one, which means they were undefeated until they played the Packers. The only other team that has beaten the Vikings, because remember, 20 and two includes the Packers game, which means there's only one other time that the, the Vikings have won the turnover battle and lost the game it was against the Chiefs who had one more takeaway the they they were the the Vikings were minus one against the Chiefs the Chiefs were at home 
and they only won by three points. Looking at the Minnesota Vikings at home, Mike Zimmer, in all of his years with the Minnesota Vikings, going back to, to what? 2014. So since 2014, Mike Zimmer has never lost a game at home with two with a positive two turnover differential, which is to say they took the ball away two more times than they gave it away. Never in his entire career. And then here come the Packers. As a little side note here, the Packers are currently third in turnover differential at plus 12. The Vikings are plus 13. The Patriots are plus 23. Which, by the way, is actually really, really encouraging because if you look at the Chicago Bears, the Chicago Bears did really well last year and their defense was really good, but one of the things that people pointed to as being entirely unsustainable was how many turnovers they had. In other words, the, the amount of turnovers, which is entirely unsustainable, is propping up a team that actually isn't that good. The Patriots are struggling, which is unusual. Usually they're getting really hot at this time of year. They're really struggling, and their defense is entire, their, their defensive performance is almost entirely unsustainable. It's, it's all pointing to a really good sign that this thing actually is legitimately starting to crumble a little bit. Not saying they're not going to win a Super Bowl and maybe they'll come back next year firing on all cylinders, I don't know. But when I saw positive 23, I was upset for about one second until I realized what that meant. This thing is, is fake. And it's not even very good right now, but it's fake. And it's exciting because I'm, I'm starting to believe that maybe this thing is actually about to end soon. This 20-year reign of the New England Patriots for crying out loud. All right, I'm going to save that note for tomorrow. We're moving along along in a pretty good clip here. Oh, one other big uh, news item. The Packers converted um, roughly, they basically roughly saved around $10 million, 10 to 11, somewhere in there, of Aaron Rodgers' contract for next year. In other words, freed up about $10 bucks. There's some speculation, depending on if they cut Jimmy Graham and a few other people, this could be upwards of $50 million in available cap money for next year. And obviously the first thought is, well, are they going to pay Kenny Clark? And I, I tend to agree that's about to happen. And it's going to be a big one. And that's awesome. Um, I'm glad that we don't have to make that decision. I'm glad because there was, there was a lot of reservations early in the season. Like, why isn't he playing well? What's going on with Kenny? Like, I really wanted him to earn that money. I wanted to feel that hurt because you need that. You'd rather have that than, than being, I mean, it's, it's not good teams that have a hundred million dollars in free agency. It's fun during free agency to get a bunch of studs and dream about how they're all going to make you win a Super Bowl. But it's better to kind of have that heartburn of, man, how are we going to pay for this guy? Because it means you've got a lot of talent, assuming you're not just being frivolous and overpaying a bunch of garbage players, which I don't think the Packers are, with the exception of maybe a Jimmy Graham who's probably gone next year, so it doesn't really matter. But it's it's a good feeling. It's, it's, It's a feeling of, yes, give him all the money. As much as it would be like, man, I'd like to save money so we can go out and pay a, a big stud next year in free agency, I don't care. But the, the point is, I, I don't think we needed to do this move in order to sign. I, I went through it already. There was some people coming out talking about the Packers don't have enough money to re-sign their guys. I don't, I don't agree with that. I think the Packers had plenty of money, and part of the problem is people always assume that however much per year is how much they're going to get in the first year. So you look at next year, you add up the per year total, so you know we're going to give Kenny... 17 million dollars a year so you subtract 17 from what it says we're going to have next year oh we're out of money that's not they're not going to pay him 17 next year they're going to pay him a ton they're probably going to pay him a lot more than 17 but it's all going to be in signing bonus which is going to be spread out over the course of the contract his actual amount of money his salary next year is going to be like a million two million bucks plus whatever the portion of the the signing bonus is which is going to be at least a five-year contract i would assume so it's going to be that that amount you know 25 million dollars cash in his bank account at his signing spread out over five years is actually only a five million dollar signing bonus hit on top of his maybe five million dollar salary means we're paying him ten million dollars maybe a million for this that or the other so it's around 
we pay him maybe 10, 11 million in his first year, even though it's a $17 million contract, it's backloaded and spread out over the contract, which you think maybe it's going to hurt later down the line, but that kind of works itself out. The salary cap goes up. By the time it gets to him actually making like $25 million in a year, you know, you look at that now and think that's ridiculous. But at that point, high-end defensive tackles like Kenny Clark are going to be making 25 27 28 million whatever that's just the natural way things go and and again the, the point is and again this isn't fully thought out but i think this gives us a lot of flexibility to pay the guys to give the packers a lot of room to negotiate and to say okay look we're going to give you this money to be able to pay a lot more up front but also still to have some money to play with next year i think they're going to and we'll see you know they, they can there's there's plenty of guys that they can extend if they so choose and by the way extending doesn't always mean more money it could mean less money but I think David Bakhtiari is on the list. I think Devontae Adams is an option. I know he's got some time left, but you don't always want to wait. The earlier you sign him, the more you save money. Because every year, positions get more and more expensive. If Devontae Adams is worth $18 million right now, next year he's worth 20 the next year he's worth 22 So you can wait two years, but you're going to be spending $4 million more on a per-year basis for Devontae Adams if you wait. I don't want to wait. It, 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 in my mentality, if I was running the money which I'm not, and I'm sure I would do a terrible job. I want to pay guys as soon as possible. If we have the money now, let's pay them now and lock in the lower rate. But I, it, but long story shorter, it gives the Packers a lot of freedom, and there is not any tension. There's nobody that should be writing articles anymore about, I think the Packers are out of money, which they never really were. But this, I, I really think this is going to give them as much freedom as they need to do literally whatever they want. Sign, extend free agency, whatever it is they feel they need to do, they, they have the freedom to do it. So that's that's actually really exciting. And it's something that Ted Thompson never really did. He didn't like to backload very much, which makes sense. I think that's prudent. But I think at times it, it really can help. And I also think Gutekunst understands much better than Ted Thompson ever did the the sort of flow of football in terms of going all in or, or kind of bringing things down, tearing down the team. Ted Thompson never... He never went all in, but he also never tore down the team. He never said, okay, we're going to rip this thing apart. He always just wanted to stay steady where he was. We need to try to fight to stay at this consistent level. And I think in football, it's, it's a matter of if, if you're at this level, you know, it's there's a time at which it, it's like poker or, or whatever. You read the cards and you realize there's a time when you push all your chips in, there's a time you fold. And I, I think Gutekunst is really feeling this thing out. You know, in his first year, he shut it down. It was a great decision. Reworked this whole thing, got new coach, new player. And I think he's kind of put himself now in a position where he realizes that maybe we win a Super Bowl, maybe we don't, but this is definitely our time. We've got a lot of real good guys, and they're really, really young. We need to go now because we have an opportunity to be a a borderline dynasty for the next four or five years, possibly more. Maybe Rodgers stays around. Maybe we hit on a quarterback. There's no saying how long we can ride this thing out. We could have Rodgers for 10 more years for all we know. And there's certainly no guarantee that, you know, just because you're hitting on some players here and just because you got, you know, some real solid players in free agency that you're going to be able to do that every year. Nothing is guaranteed. So when you got a real hot hand, you got to play your hand. you got to play it strong. So, you know, bottom line, I don't think that this is a good thing every year to constantly push out money so that we have money so that we can just keep throwing money at stuff. But I think the Packers are in that position right now. So, again, that's something that we'll continue to flesh out. Um, probably during the bye week, it'll be a good opportunity to take a look at some free agents and maybe see who's potentially available next year, maybe who we can spend a little bit of money on. If that is, in fact, the plan. Spoiler alert, I'm staring straight at these tight ends. Get a guy like Austin Hooper or something in here, man. Or, I can't even imagine, but if a guy like Hunter Henry actually hit the market, which I doubt, having 50 million bucks in the bank, it's a good thing when a guy like Hunter Henry hits the market to be able to have the opportunity to step up and buy. So, anyways, 
Uh, a couple notes. Let's look at the. You know what? Let's take our break and then we'll go hard into the Lions here. We're at a good good breaking point. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing. But they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right. A company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. All right. So I want to one, one of the things I want to look at, because the first thought I had was the last time we played the Lions, it was actually a very close game. And that by itself makes me a little bit nervous because this game is not a guarantee. However, this is clearly not the same team and for a lot of reasons. Number one, it's not the same team because it's just not the same team, but there's also the injuries. And the biggest one, Matt Stafford, is not the quarterback anymore. So I want to look at a couple different things. I did a little bit of homework. The, the broad theme here, is this the same team the Packers faced in week six? First of all, through the first five weeks, which is four games because they had a terrible bye week, which has been destroying them. They haven't had a bye week since week, what was it, week four they had a bye week? Worst bye week you can ever have, especially for a team with injury issues. They have no time to rest their team. It was just a nightmare. But this includes the first five weeks, which includes the Packer games. The Lions broke even. This is this is um, point differential is what I'm looking at. So how many more points did you win by than lose by? So they had, in the first five weeks, one tie, two wins by a grand total of six points, and two losses by a total of five points. So plus one in terms of points over the first five weeks. After the Packers game, the Lions have won one game, which is week eight, and lost by an average of eight points a game. On average, they're losing by eight points a game since we played them, since that week uh, five, what, week five, something like that. To make things worse, from weeks one to week 13, the Packers lost by double-digit points only once all season, and that was the 12-point loss the, the uh, Lions had to the Vikings. Since then, which is the last three weeks, the Lions have lost by 13 points, 21 points and 10 points three double digit losses in a row for an average point differential of 14.7 points per game they are losing by two touchdowns on average the last three weeks and the three teams we're talking about are the vikings who are a good team the bucks and the broncos those are the three teams that did that to them so yeah they're, they're getting worse at a pretty rapid pace uh continuing on with looking at some of this information uh the lions are over the course of the season are 20th in points, averaging just 21.4 points per game. In the last three weeks, those last three horrible weeks, they're averaging 14 points a game. Similarly, the defense over the season is 26th in points allowed, allowing 26.7 points per game. But over the last three weeks, they have averaged 28.3 points per game. So on average, in the last three weeks, the Lions have lost games roughly 14 to 28. Now, because I was felt I was in a nerding out kind of mood, I wanted to look into this. The The average points per game of those three teams, the Vikings, the Bucks, and the Broncos, was 24 points. On average, those defenses allowed 22 points per game. So teams have scored, on average, 117% higher than usual when they played the Lions these last three weeks, and, only, and the Lions only scored 61% of what teams usually allow per week the last three weeks. So if we apply that to what the Packers have done, in other words, 117% higher than what we usually score, and the the Lions only getting 61% of what our defense usually allows, you would expect this game to end somewhere around 28-12. to 12. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly how this works, but that's officially my, um, my prediction, by the way. Final score, Packers win 28-12. Continuing on, if we look at the team without Stafford, when the team had Matt Stafford, they were 3-4-1. and one. The team is 
0-7 without him. Now, 3-4-1 isn't great, but there's no question there's, this is a different kind of team. Furthermore, the team was averaging 25.5 points per game and is down to 16.7 ever since. They also dropped from an average of 391 yards per game to 302 yards per game and from 295 passing yards to 200 yards per game. So Matt Stafford by himself basically accounted for 100 yards and 9 points per game. That's pretty wild stuff. In other words, yards and points above replacement, 100 yards and 9 points. So with all that in mind, I want to look at a few correlations, which is always hard when a team has a ton of wins or a ton of losses because it's hard to, things kind of always come in bunches, like the losses are always in bunches. But here's here's a few things that I came up with. First of all, there was zero correlation with points scored. The Lions are 1-2 and two when they scored 30 or more points. They're also 1-3 and three when they scored less than 15. So it's just kind of all over the place. The defense, however, is a little different. Um, there's a definite cutoff point at around 26 points. When a team has passed that point, the Lions are 0-6-1. They're 3-5 when teams score less than 26 points. It's obviously a pretty high marker, so it doesn't seem that relevant, but it is the Lions' defense we're talking about, and it is a number that's certainly attainable by the Packers, given how bad this defense is. So keep 26 points in your mind. The uh, the Lions have not won a game when a team has eclipsed that. Uh, passing yards is also something to keep an eye on. They're 0-4 when teams have, or when the Lions have thrown less than 200 yards. Now, that seems... It's another one that seems like, okay, but that, you know, most teams aren't going to do that or whatever. And also, it's only four games, so it's not that relevant. However, it's only happened four times, but all four of those times have happened since week 11. So four out of their last six games, they have not gotten to 200 yards, and they have not won a game without 200 yards. Of course, they haven't won a game in the last <laughs> seven games, so whatever. But the, the most amount of yards that a team has thrown for since week 11 was 259 yards in week 13 against the Bears. So it's actually very doable to have a goal to keep them under 200 yards. And it, another interesting little tidbit, the Packers are kind of known for giving up a lot of yards and, and kind of big plays and all that kind of stuff. But it's another one of those things that just kind of carries over, even though it hasn't been the case recently. The, the um, They actually have allowed 200 yards only once since the bye week. So they've, they've done a pretty good job of keeping the yardage low. I mean, under 200 passing yards is actually really impressive. I mean, there haven't been that many games after the bye, but you would expect most games teams are throwing for 200 yards. They've only done it once against the Packers, and that's against the Vikings and the 49ers and a lot of other teams. And the 49ers were not one of the teams, by the way. I think it was the Giants were the only team that threw for more than 200 yards. Um, the Lions do not have a win when a team has eclipsed 25 first downs. So, you know, 25 first downs is a lot. But since first downs was kind of a big thing before, and the Packers being able to sustain long drives is kind of a nice thing that we started to see last week, there's, there's a chance. However, the Packers have only gotten 25 first downs once. So keep an eye on it if you want, but probably not the easiest goal in the world. Um, yardage given up is also a breaking point, but the breaking point is around 425 yards, which is a really big number. Uh, the Packers very rarely eclipse that. However, they've done it three times, and one of the three times they did it was against the Lions. So, again, another really tough one to break, but keep an eye on that if they're really slinging it around. The one thing, though, the Packers really need to watch is turnover. And as I said, one of the things I want to keep more of an eye on is how do the Packers lose as opposed to how do the Packers win, because it's kind of the default that the Packers are going to win. Turnovers can be kind of a bad thing, and I know we got away with it against the Vikings, so why wouldn't we be able to get away with the, with the Lions? But the Packers were terrible last week, and this is actually one area where the Lions are pretty strong. The Lions are two and three with two or more turnovers. I know two and three is a losing record, but they've only they've only got three wins. So to be two and three when they are able to get two turnovers and two turnovers isn't all that much. 
If if they see last week and think, all right, we our only hope is to start punching at this ball, and they actually get two turns, they're they're in the game. So I, I think if if there is a really big key in this game, the two that I have stay healthy, don't turn the ball over. Bottom line is the Packers from top to bottom are much better than the Lions in every facet of the game. The only thing that's going to mess this up is the Packers getting in their own way, making silly mistakes, throwing interceptions, dropping balls, ridiculous turnovers, whatever. That's the only thing that's going to keep the Lions in this game. Um, flipping over to PFF real quick, the quarterback right now is David Blow. I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but that's how I'm going to say it because he does. I mean, he is. That's his name. Um, Jeff Driscoll was the backup, but he got put on IR, so we are now down to the third-string quarterback. But looking specifically at Mr. Blow, uh, since he's taken over, which I think has been about four weeks now, um, he is graded as the 26th overall quarterback out of 34. As a comparison to the quarterbacks the Packers have played, Daniel Jones, in, so in the last four weeks, and this is going to surprise a lot of people and seem fake, but it is what it is, because the, the, the assumption is the Packers have played terrible quarterbacks. But here's the thing. I want to see what David Blow is compared to the quarterbacks the Packers have played and those grades over the last four weeks. Daniel Jones is the seventh highest graded quarterback in the last four weeks. Haskins is the sixth highest graded quarterback over the last four weeks. To be clear, two really, really good games, two really bad games, but still six. Trubisky is 11th, Cousins is 13th. It seems almost exactly opposite of what you would expect, but there you go. So clearly this is the worst quarterback the Packers have played since the bye and probably all year, which is fantastic news because the Packers really like to pick on quarterbacks, and this is just sort of an unfair and very easy target. Um, For reference, David Blow, I think that's his name, Uh, His highest-graded game was against the Chicago Bears, and his stat line in that game was 22 of 38, which is a ridiculously low percentage, 280 yards, 7.4 yards per attempt, two touchdowns, and a pick. That's him at his best. Um, And yes, he is terrible under pressure, as you would expect most quarterbacks are, especially young, inexperienced guys. He is 12 of 35, which is a 34.3% completion rate for 192 yards, which is a 5.5-yard average, zero touchdowns, three interceptions. Fortunately for us, he's one of the most sacked quarterbacks in football over the over the time since he's been in the league. He also leads the league in batted passes, which is a quarterback stat, believe it or not. It's, it's throwing at inopportune times in the wrong place, whatever. And he's also had the most drops by his wide receiver. So his wide receivers are not helping him out at all. Packers actually are like second in that category, by the way. The wide receivers have been just brutal. But uh, yeah, he's having a pretty rough go of it. So it's, it's, on one hand, he's playing poorly, but the team around him is absolutely collapsing. In fact, he's actually grading out higher as a quarterback than Driscoll did. But the team is performing much worse since he took over a quarterback because the team is just falling apart. But injury-wise, teams are leaving, but also you have wide receivers who are massively dropping as far as their grades are concerned and uh, dropping balls and everything else. It's just been a nightmare. Uh, looking at running back, carry on his back. That's something to keep an eye on. He, he is a pretty talented guy, but it's not quite as scary as I was expecting after I looked into it a bit. He ran the ball 10 times for 42 yards, 4.2 yard average last week. My first thought when I saw that was they were easing him back because he only had 10 carries. They must be kind of taking it easy on him. But in reality, they only ran the ball 21 times. Carrion had actually the bulk of the carries. So 10 carries was the bulk of the carries. Um, and actually what happened was, you know, you look at it and you say 10 carries, 4.2 yard average is actually pretty good. The Broncos were surprisingly horrible last week against the run. Bo Scarborough from Alabama, who's just a big, giant, lunking, massive, Eddie Lacy wannabe, uh, ran for 4.3 yards uh, average, which is higher than carry-on guy. And Ty Johnson, who is, I think, their number three guy, got 6.7 yards per carry. 
So bottom line is this was not a typical performance for any of these guys. So 4.2 yards, you would expect that to actually regress quite a bit because that just they the, the Broncos just did a terrible job. Presumably they were just up ahead and just decided to play the pass all week or something. I don't know. Carry on over the course of the season is actually averaging about 3.4 yards per carry and two touchdowns on the season, which is not good at all. He has been hurt quite a bit. So, you know, you want to say, well, it's only two touchdowns, but he's been out half the season. The, the problem is, though, if you give him the same amount of carries and look at the touchdown percentage per carry as Aaron Jones, he'd be at four touchdowns. So he's not doing anything on the ground. 3.4 yards per carry is garbage. He's not doing anything in, on the end zone, in the end zone, around the end zone. And as a receiver, he's averaging two targets, one reception, and 21 yards through the air per game. If there was a receiving back on this team, it would probably be J.D. McKissick, but he hasn't seen 20 yards receiving since uh, week 11, when he had three targets, three receptions for 40 yards. He has one touchdown through the air all season. I'm talking about McKissick. So they don't really have a receiving back. They don't have a very good ground game at all. Again, Carrion's their top guy. He's not getting anything by way of average yardage, touchdowns. He's not a receiver. He's not doing anything. So they don't have a huge threat on the ground. Uh, moving on to wide receiver, Marvin Jones is on IR along with Marvin Hall and Jermaine Curse, which takes a very talented trio with a bunch of depth down to basically a duo with zero depth. That's what the wide receiver group has turned into. Since Jones went down, they elevated Chris Lacey, no relation to Eddie Lacey that I can find, and believe me, I spent a lot of time trying to prove that that was the case. Basically, Chris Lacey played about one week. He played terrible, and they cut his snaps in half, and he started sharing time with Travis Fulgham last week. So they don't really even know who their number three is going to be, either Chris Lacey or Travis Fulgham. Uh, in the last two weeks, Lacey and Fulgham have graded out as the 126th and 138th best receivers out of 140. So basically two of the worst wide receivers in all of football. Uh, overall, that still does leave two pretty decent wide receivers in Amendola and Galladay. Overall, they are 24th and 46th, which is respectable. That's their overall ranking, their grade ranking. Uh, Galladay 24th and Amendola 46th. The real issue comes when you look at them since Stafford left. And we saw this, like I mentioned, I think yesterday when with Jordy. When, when Jordy lost Aaron Rodgers, Jordy's stats just went right in the tank, and he became one of the worst wide receivers, and he was frustrated, and just it just didn't work. Galladay is currently graded as the 37th best in football since Stafford left. Amendola is 94th. So they don't even have, if you were to use my 32 overall standard, they don't have a number one right now. Now, Galladay is still respectable, and he's still scary. We remember what he did. He's a deep threat. He's getting about 17.7 yards per reception. His stats are actually very similar to Adams, despite having a lot less reception because he's just such a good deep threat. But if you compare it to some of the guys like Diggs and Thielen and Cooper and Hill, this just is not a real big talented wide receiver group especially when you consider who's throwing him the football and his ability to throw pinpoint passes etc etc but in general i think really if we can just keep galladay from that big from the big play i think we'll be fine and the packers are going to be on guard because they came out and did it last time right first play of the game big touchdown pass to kenny galladay i don't think the packers are going to want to let that happen again they're going to be ready um for for him taking that shot uh moving on to the offensive line in stafford's eight games as the quarterback, he was sacked 18 times. Since then, the quarterbacks have been sacked 24 times in seven games. So in eight games, Stafford went down 18 times. In seven games since, it's been 24 sacks. It's not really much of a coincidence either because PFF has credited Jeff Driscoll with six of his own sacks in just three games, and Blow has four sacks in four games. So these guys are holding onto the ball too long. They're running into guys. Whatever the, the issue is, 
these two have the number two and number three most amount of sacks given up on a team. On their team, I mean. Despite only playing three games and four games respectively, respectively, they account for second and third most sacks given up on the team. The only one that's given up more sacks is Taylor Decker, who has given up seven sacks over the course of the whole season, which is roughly a half a sack per game. If you just look at the offensive line and not quarterbacks refusing to throw the ball, the Lions' offensive line actually isn't that bad. Their pass-blocking efficiency ranking on PFF, which is essentially looking at total pressures given up, but kind of weighting them more heavily towards sacks, etc., because those are more impactful. They've got the Lions sitting at 10th overall as the 10th best uh, offensive line, pass-blocking offensive line, actually one spot ahead of the Green Bay Packers. And then finally for the offense, tight end. The Lions' tight ends are really, really bad. Uh, I spent a lot of time looking at them compared to the Packers to kind of give a reference to where they're at in a way that we can understand. But even before Hawkinson went on IR, you'd be hard-pressed to call any of them threats. In the three weeks since Hawkinson has gone down, Isaac Nauta has been their highest-graded tight end, primarily because he's a decent pass blocker, but he's ranked 42nd overall. For reference, the Packers in that same time, in that same stretch, have Mercedes Lewis, who is ranked as the 18th overall, and Tanyan is the 29th. So we have two guys that are way ahead of their number one guy, Ozzie Nauta, who doesn't do anything but pass block occasionally. Between the Green Bay Packers and the Detroit Lions, if you take all the tight ends, the highest graded receiver is Robert Tanyan, who has a 60.6 overall receiving grade. For those that don't know, 60 is perfectly average, meaning you're just mediocre. He's the only one that isn't bad. Seven tight ends between Green Bay and Detroit, only one isn't bad. Doesn't have a bad grade. And probably the only reason Tanyan even has a 60.6 is because he caught a touchdown pass. Um, Statistically, Jesse James is obviously the top dog, but really his stats and everything are parallel to Jimmy Graham. So Jesse James is their Jimmy Graham. They both have five receptions, um, 66-ish yards. Jimmy has 65. Both of them right around 13 yards per reception. Um, so that's, that's, that's their one receiving threat. And again, he's, he's at best Jimmy Graham. Among this group, there are four drops, all four of them from Lions tight ends, not one from the Packers tight end group. Uh, I mentioned Nauta is their top pass blocking tight end. The, there are four basically among these two teams that are decent pass blockers. There's Nauta and the other three are all Green Bay Packers. Uh, Mercedes Lewis, Jay Sternberger, and Jimmy Graham. None of those four tight ends have given up a single pressure. And then as far as run blocking goes, it's Mercedes Lewis and nobody. The Lions don't have a single run blocking tight end. Flipping over to the defense, the only guy that they have that's really any, it's kind of an unfair statement, I guess, but the best guy that they have, the only one with an 80 overall grade is Trey Flowers, and he's actually coming on real strong since about week 11. So prior to week 11, he had two games in which he had a grade of elite, otherwise all pretty trash. Weeks 1, 2, 3... Uh, 6, 7, 9, 10, all just garbage games. Since then, his grades have been 72, 81, 70, 75, and 79. He's just been dominant pretty much all year and mostly as a pass rusher. His pressures have been 6, 5, 3, 8, and 3. He's had uh, two sacks over the last five weeks, which isn't that impressive if you're a Packer fan. Now we can be snooty about it, like, oh, two sacks, that's pathetic. But he's done pretty well, and he's, he's decent against the run. He's just kind of solid across the board. He's been putting together a, a good, solid few weeks. Other than that, uh, Tavon Wilson and Tracy Walker are the two safeties that are actually putting things together pretty well. Tracy Walker's very, very volatile. Some good days, some bad days, but putting together a pretty decent year overall. Uh, behind them, Amani Aruarie. I missed saying his name when I was doing all the draft talk. Uh, pretty, Actually pretty encouraging if you're a Lions fan. Obviously none of us are, but he didn't get a single start until week 11, and he kind of just came out firing. 
Uh, he's had some bad days, like against Tampa, as you would expect from a young guy. But uh, his very first week, he only had nine snaps. He did a decent enough job. His second week, his first full, first full game against the Washington Redskins, he had a 90 overall coverage grade. He played 31 snaps in coverage. He was targeted five times, only three receptions for 21 yards and a pick, a 30 overall uh, passer rating. Uh, he had a good game against Chicago. And then last week against Denver, he actually did really, really well. So they might have something pretty legit with Amani Aruarie, who was drafted fifth overall, or uh, not fifth overall, fifth round, which a lot of people, he was kind of thought of as maybe even a first round, possibly second round guy who fell really, really far. So a lot of people are feeling pretty vindicated about him right now. Um, another somewhat unheralded guy, Devin Kennard. Pretty mediocre, but he does have a 70 overall grade. He's got 43 pressures and 7 sacks. 7 sacks isn't actually bad if you're ending your season that way. Pretty close to double digits. Trey Flowers also only has 7 sacks, so he's actually tied with him on that. Otherwise, that's about it, though. They got a bunch of average and a bunch of terrible on this defense. And, of course, a lot of these guys are injured. So just not a whole lot going on here. Okwara is... So so the next best pass rusher is Romeo Okwara. He has 32 pressures on the season, only two sacks. They really just don't have very many good corners, obviously aside Amani, which maybe that's kind of flukish. It's a pretty small sample size. But even Darius Slay has kind of fallen off a bit. I've never actually been a huge Slay fan, but I know he gets a lot of respect. But there's no, I mean, if you just look at his grades since 2015, 78, 80, 80, 75, this year, 60. Uh, if you look at his past breakups since 2015, 10, 10, 13, 12, so far this year, 7. Interceptions, he's only got 2. Yards per reception, 13.5. That's the highest he's given up since his rookie year. 580 yards given up so far this year, which I guess isn't that much. He gave up 700-ish in 2017, but also a lot more snaps there. So he, bottom line, he's having a down year. This is not the Darius Slay of old. I know he's not very happy. They got rid of Quandre Diggs, and Darius Slay was the first one to come out and be like, dude, what are you guys doing? So they've got some pretty pretty inconsistent but quality safety. One maybe kind of-ish uh, new corny, corner in Aruarie. You can't say it not roll the R's, man. Try it. It doesn't work. Well, you're lying because it doesn't work, so deal with it. So kind of in a zoomed-out view, what we're looking at is a team with three pretty bad corners, including Coleman, who actually looked pretty pretty promising at the start of the season, but has uh, definitely reg- regressed quite a bit. As of right now, looking at PFF grades, it's the worst year he's ever had. So he has fallen off rapidly. Uh, Melvin is just, Rashawn Melvin is no good, and as, as I said, Darius Slay has fallen off. Across the board, the three grades, the highest is Darius Slay at a 60, which is not good. Then you have Melvin at 56.5 and Coleman at 56.3. Uh, again, you got Flowers and Kennard, and on the inside, Atkins and Aquara, uh, Snacks, Harrison. Even Snacks is having just a really, really down year. They, I mean, if you look at Snacks, Harrison, th- th- this is just how you know this team has completely fallen off because Damon Snacks, Harrison, his grade since 2013, 90, 79, 80, or 90, 90, 90. 92 last year, 64. So 90, 80, 90, 90, 90, 92, 64. Worst grade he's ever gotten, including rookie year when he had a 66. Now this is usually just him as a, as a dominant run defender, probably the best in football, but so what? He's not even that anymore. He's not even anything anymore. He's not doing anything. They don't have any, you know, the, their two linebackers are gone. Now they, their three linebacker look is... Um, Steve Longa, who is probably the lowest graded person I've ever seen in my life. In 2017, he had a grade of 27. 
he's actually gone up a little bit. So far in 2019, he has a grade of 27.7, so he's pretty consistent in that. Otherwise, Jalen Reeves-Mabin and Jason Cabinda, who has not enough snaps to do anything this year. So it's basically a live tryout that we're seeing this week. This 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 isn't even a football team. This is this is a bunch of this is like they're in their preseason. They don't have their starters. Their starters aren't even playing very well. This should be an absolute slaughter. End of story. There's there's nothing else to say about this. This defense is atrocious. Their quarterback is bad. Their wide receivers, who, you know, when you're just looking at Amendola and Galladay are pretty decent, are actually having a rough go of it since they lost their quarterback. They don't have any tight ends outside of Jesse James, who again is like Jimmy Graham at his best. They don't have a run game. They've got a decent enough offensive line, but best of luck against the Packers pass rushers. I mean, man, that's that's just... that I, 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 I got nothing else. Otherwise, I don't know. I got nothing else. So, I'll talk to you bright and surly tomorrow. We'll be looking at some of the other games few other comments here and there uh get in the facebook group let me know your thoughts on this extra amount of money and if you have any thoughts about the contract extension for lucas patrick otherwise you folks have yourselves a good day and i'll talk to you tomorrow Bye bye